Good morning. It's great to see you this morning. Uh, if you would turn with me uh, to Matthew chapter 12, and we're going to begin at the first verse. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain at eat. When they saw this, the Pharisees said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what's not lawful to do on a Sabbath. And he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he and those who were with him were hungry, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not right for him to eat, nor those with him, but only the priests? And have you not read the law, that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? I say to you, something greater than the temple is here. If you knew what it means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, then you would not condemn the innocent, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And departing from there, he came to their synagogue. And look, a man with a withered hand. And they questioned him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath in order to accuse him? And Jesus said to them, Which among you who will have one sheep, and if it falls into a trench on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and haul it out? Then of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched out his hand, and it was completely restored, like his other one. And going out the Pharisees conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word. Uh, we long to understand it and to live in the light of it. We pray that you might address each one of us this morning and hearing your voice, we might obey you, we might honour your son, and might be the people you call on us to be, and we ask it of you for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, my daughters believe I have a problem, uh, many problems actually, uh, but the one I have in mind uh, is, uh, has to do with my preferred movie and television choices. While they'll take a romantic comedy any day, there always seems to be a death, and most of the time a murder, somewhere in the movies or television programs that I choose to watch. Now, I protest, of course. There are plenty of period pieces that I've watched that have no deaths in them. I watch Disney movies with them. Hey, I watch The Lion King with them. But uh, Scar murders Mufasa in that one, doesn't he? <laughs> but it's interesting how many mysteries I watch end up being murder mysteries. You know, Inspector Morse... Lewis, Endeavour, Sherlock, Inspector Poirot, Shetland, Wallander. Well, there's a lot of death when I come to think about it. The act of murder, and more specifically exploring the intention to murder, seems to have a large role in contemporary filmmaking. It makes the story exciting. It builds tension and it keeps us on the edge of our seats. It makes us wonder why. Because such an act is so extreme, we want to know why. What would drive them to this? 
As the story of Jesus unfolds in Matthew's Gospel, the tension has been mounting in a number of areas. But it's in the passage that I just read to you that it all starts to come out into the open. The passage ends, remember, with, and going out, the Pharisees conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. That's where these encounters are going to end. Something that Jesus does here, something that Jesus says here, in these verses, is taken as a reason to destroy him, a motive for killing him. What is that? I mean, after all, it's just a theological debate, isn't it? A debate about what is lawful and what is not, according to the scriptures. How could this possibly be enough to push them over the edge? How could this possibly be enough to set that fire alight that would rage throughout the rest of this gospel and end up at the cross? What makes him so dangerous? Why must he be stopped at all costs? I want to uh, suggest that as we travel through this particular murder mystery, explore the intention or the motive for this murder, and murder it will most definitely be we will discover something very uncomfortable about the Pharisees, something far too close to us and far too possible for us, for us to ignore. We're still in the uh, narrative section between Jesus' sermon on mission in Matthew 10 and his parables of the kingdom in Matthew 13. In Matthew 11, he'd been faced with doubt and unbelief. In chapter 12... This is ramped up as he faces challenge after challenge from the Pharisees. You might remember from two weeks ago that the last thing Jesus had to say at the end of chapter 11 was to issue an invitation. Come to me, all who labour and are loaded with burdens, and I will refresh you. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, because I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear and my burden is light. There is a way of carrying life that is refreshing rather than burdensome. A way of being serious about the things that really matter that is relaxed and joyful and confident and non-defensive. And Jesus has come. Take it up. And against that backdrop and in that context we find the two encounters at the beginning of Matthew 12. There are two of them, aren't there? Uh, the confrontation in the grain fields and the confrontation in the synagogue. And two great truths, amongst others, emerge through those confrontations. Something greater than the temple is here. And the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And we will need to ask ourselves, why at the end of this would there be a reason to kill well, firstly, in the grain fields, verses 1 to 8. It is the Sabbath, the Jewish day of rest, the day when other things are laid aside so that the priority of God's call over all we are and all we do is recognised. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, God had told the Israelites through Moses when they were camped before Mount Sinai. Six days you shall labour and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. 
For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. A day that remembered the pattern God himself had set into the creation at the beginning. A rhythm that was bound to his own revelation of how the world came to be. A rest that prefigures the rest to come, as we'll learn more fully later in the New Testament. But at the time of Jesus, one of the great distinctives of the Jewish people, on the Sabbath day, you shall not do any work. Well, it seems that Jesus and his disciples were on their way to the synagogue that Sabbath, and that way went through the grain fields. And the disciples were hungry. It's fascinating how many times Matthew's got, in Matthew's Gospel that he notices that people were hungry. Well, they were. And as they walked through the standing grain, they picked some and ate it. Now, I don't know if you've ever done that, if you've ever walked through a grain field and grazed along the way. I've actually watched people graze as they go down the aisles of Harris Farm, but, you know, <laughs> that's something slightly different, I suppose. But um, the Old Testament law made a specific provision for people to do this. If you go into your neighbour's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes, as many as you wish, but you shall not put any in your bag. If you go into your neighbour's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbour's grain. There was nothing wrong with the action in and of itself. But this day was a Sabbath, and that changed everything. We're not told uh, how or why, but the Pharisees saw what was happening. What were they doing there? Following Jesus? Trying to get intel on him and his movements? Or something more sinister? Now, whatever they were doing, they pounce. And they accuse Jesus' disciples of breaking the Sabbath by harvesting grain. Even if it was only a little bit. Even if it was by hand, it was still harvesting. It was still work. And so it was still against the law. The rabbis would, in time, have an entire handbook on how to keep the Sabbath. Just what constituted work and what the limits were. How many steps you could walk. How many stitches you could sew. How much treatment you could provide for the sick and under what circumstances. All laid out all carefully lined up. And the Pharisees judged that what the disciples was, were doing uh, went too far. And so they pounced. Lord, your disciples are doing what it is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Perhaps they thought they were just defending the teaching of Scripture in the face of licence and self-regulation. After all, they were well known to be scrupulous and they weren't above virtue signalling when it suited them. They would never think of doing anything like this. It was flagrantly and directly against the teaching of the Lord. No work on the Sabbath. None. But Jesus shows them that they did not know the Scriptures as well as they pretended they did. And he takes them to three passages from the Old Testament. The first is from the life of King David. And citing David itself is a risky move. By citing this story, Jesus was in some way or other associating himself with David, 
the greatest of Israel's kings, the great Messiah of the Old Testament. So citing David in the atmosphere surrounding Jesus in those days was inflammatory. What he and his disciples are doing, he implies, is no more than David and those with him did in 1 Samuel 21. You might remember David was running from Saul, who was determined to kill him. His friend Jonathan, David's son, had warned him. And he rushed to Abimelech, the priest, in Nob. When he arrived, he and his men were famished and he asked for bread. The only bread available in the place was the bread of the presence, the bread, we're told, which is removed before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. That's the bread that only the priests were to eat. God made that perfectly clear in Leviticus 24. But David's need and the need of his men was more important in God's sight than this ceremonial regulation and we know that because David was never rebuked for eating it. And so these Pharisees must not have understood the law that they claimed to be protecting so fiercely. Have you not read, Jesus asked, because they should have read and they should have understood, but they haven't. There are some things more important than the details of ceremonial law, especially when the king has come. Well, Jesus did not stop uh, with this example from the life of David. That was certainly suggestive. But he knew that on its own it would not be enough to convince them. And so he took them to a second passage from the Old Testament, not this time from the history of Israel's kings, but from the law given through Moses. Have you not read in the law, Jesus said in verse 5, that he, and then he reminds them that the priests break the Sabbath. They break the Sabbath every Sabbath. They do not stop. But in fact, they do twice as much on the Sabbath as they do during the week. The daily sacrifice plus extra sacrifices because it is a Sabbath. It would seem to be on the surface, as Jesus puts it, a flagrant profaning, a, a desecration of the Sabbath. It's quite a strong word he uses. And yet they too are blameless. Because at this point, the Sabbath doesn't overturn the service of God. The Sabbath is important, no doubt. But the temple is even more important. There's a sentence in the Jewish writings that sums it up. Uh, the sacrifices supersede the Sabbath. The temple supersedes the Sabbath. And that's when Jesus drops in a clangor in verse 6. I say to you, something greater than the temple is here. It's an extraordinary thing to say. The temple and the sacrifices supersede the Sabbath. The temple is of immense significance and immense value the symbol of God's presence amongst his people. And Jesus has the audacity to say something greater than the temple is here. For what could be greater than the temple? Who could be greater than the temple? Put that claim alongside the association with David 
And what has begun as a debate about the Sabbath has turned into something far more serious and far more confronting. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He cites a third passage from the Old Testament. He's referred them to the history of King David, to the law given through Moses, and now he turns to the writing of the prophets. If you knew what it means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, then you would not condemn the innocent. It's from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. It's from that message to unrepentant Israel and Judah, the people whose love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. And they're under judgment because for all their religious ceremony and conversation, they have not understood, they have not really loved, and they have not seen what really matters. I desire mercy not sacrifice. Jesus takes the Pharisees to this passage from Hosea on top of the example of David and the law given to Israel and says, if you'd known what this means, if you'd really taken the scriptures as seriously as you claim to do, then you would not condemn the innocent. Your preoccupation with the niceties of the Sabbath has meant you have missed the big picture missed where it has all been heading. And then the second clangor. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Everything the Sabbath has been pointing to, everything has arrived in me. Something earth-shattering has happened. A brand new day has dawned. It's much more significant than when King David fronted up at the residence of the priest Abimelech. It's much more significant even than the prescribed sacrifices of the temple. Jesus and his kingdom is greater than the temple and the Sabbath serves him. You've been distracted and you've not seen what's been happening. The Pharisees were busy defending the Sabbath as the day of rest and if they had been listening, they would have heard that this shadow, this Sabbath was giving way even then to the reality, a better rest, a real rest. Come to me, remember. Come to me, he said, all who labour and are loaded with burdens, and I will give you rest. It's not hard to see why the temperature was rising, is it? Whatever you think you're doing, you've been distracted from the main game, and you failed to see the significance of what is happening before your very eyes, and you have not understood who I am. Well, I don't know how much further uh, they needed to go through those grain fields, but there would be a second encounter between Jesus and the Pharisees that Sabbath, and it would happen as soon as they arrived at the synagogue. So, in the synagogue, verses 9 to 13. Don't miss the detail, will you? Jesus came to the synagogue and there is a man with a withered hand. But before anything else is said or done, the Pharisees are back in the frame. I suspect they worked out immediately that Jesus would want to heal this man. His compassion and his ministry of healing was well known throughout the region. So they grabbed the initiative. It's interesting, isn't it? They criticised the disciples for what they were doing as they walked through the fields on the Sabbath 
But they had no embarrassment at all about doing this on the Sabbath, about spending their time trying to develop a case against Jesus on the Sabbath. And so they ask, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? They weren't genuinely asking. They just wanted evidence so that they might accuse him. And this time Jesus doesn't take them to the Old Testament history or the teaching of the law or the warning of the prophets. He just reminds them of everyday life and the common sense application of all that God has said and the larger principle behind it. Which among you will have one sheep and if it falls into a trench on the Sabbath will not take hold of it and haul it out? The answer is obvious, isn't it? You don't need a degree in the law. You don't need some deep spiritual insight to realise there's only one thing to do. Get out there now and haul that sheep out of the trench. Don't leave it there in distress, unable to get out and potentially harming itself as it keeps trying. Go and rescue it. That's the only reasonable thing to do. It's the only compassionate thing to do. And if blind Freddy can work that out, Jesus is saying, then of how much more value is a man than a sheep? If the Sabbath does not trump an act of compassion to a sheep, it can't trump an act of compassion to a man or woman created in the image of God. So the answer to your question, he says to the Pharisees, is straightforward. It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Of course it is. Only the hardest of hearts would turn aside and refuse to do good because of a law given for the welfare of human beings in the first place. Mark's Gospel records words from the grain fields that Matthew passes over. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. To insist on the regulations and to ignore the human need reveals something very ugly about the heart of the Pharisees. We've known that all along because their question was not a genuine inquiry. It had no interest in the man who stood before them with his most obvious need. It was meant simply to provide them with a means to accuse Jesus. And so in stark contrast to their self-interested, paper-thin pretense of a concern for religious propriety, Jesus does that good on the Sabbath he was talking about with just a word. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched out his hand and it was completely restored like his other one. So there they are, the first two confrontations in a chapter of confrontations. But it only took these two to turn a dispute over the fourth commandment into a breach of the sixth. And going out, the Pharisees conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. Jesus did good on that Sabbath. They plotted to kill him. And the obvious question that arises is why? What is it that stirs such vicious hatred and directs their minds to murder? These exchanges revealed him to be a threat to the religious status quo. That's true. He wasn't doing things their way. 
There were authorities in place, lines no one was to cross, and if he kept talking like this and acting like this, then those authorities and those lines would be compromised. He showed up the shallowness of their own appeal to the Bible. He made apparent their callous indifference to the need of those around them. It was only a matter of time until he turned the people against them. I'm quite sure that's there, somewhere behind their behaviour that day. Protecting our own interests, our own influence, our own authority is so very often a motive for undoing, in one way or another, those who seem to threaten these things. He challenged their entire theological position as well. He's been doing that, to be honest, for some time. They claim to be guardians of the truth, the most valiant for truth among their contemporaries. They had it all worked out. They had an answer to every question. At least they did have, until he showed that they'd misunderstood God and his purposes at a very deep and basic level. Their hearts were not where God's heart is. They did not understand what the rest, uh, what the rest God had prefigured in the Sabbath had been pointing to all along. And while they were determined to insist on compliance, no matter what, Jesus had said, you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. No doubt that's there as well. No one copes all that well with being shown that their theological understanding needs to be entirely recast. No one really wants to be told you've completely misunderstood what you've thought you've known so well. But there is a third motive, not totally unrelated to the other two, and one I think is uncomfortably close as a danger for us. Jesus exposed what really was in the centre of their convictions and practices. And it wasn't something which in and of itself was bad. But by displacing what should have been in the centre, it had become distorted and ugly and dangerous. The Sabbath was a good thing. God had set it up as a reminder of his goodness in creation and he later spoke of it as a reminder too of his mercy and redemption. It was a very good thing. But by making it the central thing, they had turned it into an excuse for hard-heartedness and self-promotion. It is possible to take things that are good and right and true but which point to something more important, to take those things and to make them the things we hold on to the tightest, the things we protect and guard no matter what. It could be something in your theological system, a conviction that points to the gospel that is dangerously close to becoming the gospel for you. It could be a particular aspect of your church practice, your studied informality, your pattern of church membership, your commitment to preaching, your strategy for church growth and church planting, all meant to direct people to Jesus and his gospel, but strangely capable of supplanting Jesus and his gospel when they take centre stage. We are always capable of majoring on minors, being distracted by the periphery 
and losing the centre when we do. And I think it's all the more dangerous in a place like this where there are so many interesting things on the periphery. And before we know it, that little thing is the thing we will defend to the death. And we've lost sight of the priorities of God, the priorities of his word, the priorities of Jesus and his gospel. Friends, we're approaching Easter. As a friend of mine once said, Easter is a reminder that given half a chance, we will murder our maker. And it happened. Not in the centre of the pagan world, but in that place where the worship of the true God was meant to be taking place. A stone's throw away from the place where the living God had put his name, where the sacrifices were made, where the law was taught, and prayer and praise were offered to the only God there is. Of all places, there. That's where it happened. It is so easy to let religious practices and even theological convictions, even the really good ones, obscure what matters most. We must understand what this means. Something greater than the temple has come and the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we ask that having heard your word this morning, you might give us the grace to heed it. For Jesus' sake.